This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode in the new budget for 2023, the New Orleans Public Defender's Office will be close to achieving parity with the District Attorney's Office for the first time since it was mandated via ordinance in 2020. The Louisiana Department of Health publicly misreported the figures for asthma-related emergency room visits. And the New Orleans Home Rule Charter may see two new amendments for voters' approval in next fall's election. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hi, Nick. Hey, Kevin. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hello, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Nick, in 2020, the New Orleans City Council passed an ordinance mandating that the city provide the Orleans Public Defender's Office with at least 85% of the funding that it gives to the Orleans Parish DA's office. But that move proved to be mostly symbolic in the last couple of years. This year looks like it might be different. Tell us the story, or the history anyway, of that that, uh, ordinance. So back in 2020, the New Orleans City Council and really New Orleans City Council President uh, Jason Williams, who was running for district attorney at the time and who now is the district attorney, passed an ordinance that mandated that the public defenders get 85% of the city allocated budget funding that the district attorney's office gets. Um, Now, at the time, that seemed like a pretty big deal because historically the public defenders had been uh, funded at just a fraction of the district attorney's uh, office rate, so only around like 25%. So when this passed, it really seemed like this was this was going to be a big deal for the public defenders getting 85% of the DA's budget. And it was actually quite surprising how easily it passed. Um, there was no objection from the city, despite the fact that it ostensibly sort of tied their hands in creating the budget um, and really moved through quite easily. And we come to find out after after this was passed that Perhaps the reason for that was because the ordinance actually wasn't binding. Each year, the city passes a budget and it's passed as an ordinance, and that budget ordinance actually overrides any other funding ordinance that had been uh, previously passed. So this was mostly a symbolic move. No one was, no one really mentioned that when it was passed that it wasn't <laughs> going to be binding. The city council president, Jason Williams, at the time was running for DA, and he kind of touted this as a big win and and kind of as as a you know, a reflection of his his progressive credentials. Right. The public defenders didn't really want to bring up the fact that it wasn't binding because, you know, they wanted everyone to assume that they needed to, to get this funding. But when the mayor eventually rolled out her proposed budget for the year, the public defenders were only uh, budgeted at about 35% of the DA's office. Um, so it was immediately clear that the mayor's office wasn't taking this ordinance seriously and that didn't didn't really consider it legally binding. Um, ultimately, in 2020, the, the public defenders were able to get about 65% of the funding as the DA's office, which they were very happy about. It was much more than they'd ever gotten before. Right. Um, but still, you know, not uh, not the the 85% mandated by the ordinance. So let me ask if there is a way for them to have written it differently or to amend it now so that it, I understand, we're going to talk about how they are actually going to achieve parity, close to parity anyway, this year. But that seems like it might be just as a reflection of, of the new budget, not because they're 
finally doing it because they're legally mandated to, as you stated, they don't really have to. Is there a way to make it longstanding? What would be required, and I haven't heard this discussed, which is not to say that no one's been thinking about it, but what would be required is is for there to be an, a charter amendment um, and the city to actually change its, its underlying charter, which is kind of like its constitution, yeah. in order to mandate a certain amount of funding for the public defender's office. Michael, are we talking about your police monitor story? Yeah, I, I was going to interject just real quick. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a second, but there's a lot of potential charter changes kind of on the table right now. And, yeah. and um, Councilman J.P. Morrell has even introduced an ordinance to set up a committee um, specifically to consider changes to the charter. Um, so, you know, in the past and currently, there, there are council members saying that, you know, they want to get more involved in more actively, um, you know, changing the charter. But of course, all those changes require uh, approval from voters um, at the end of the day. So, um, you know, again, we're, charter changes aren't all that common, but they seem to be becoming a, a little bit more common mm. with this council. Right, which we'll get to in a minute, as you said. All right, so that's the that's the mechanism by which they could they could make it permanent. But this year, it happens to actually include parity. So, how did that happen? Well. And it actually started last year. Last year, the mayor proposed a budget that actually did achieve parity. And, mm. you know, what the discussions were like in the mayor's office to decide that they were going to go ahead and do that when the previous year, despite the, you know, ordinance, ordinance having been passed, they ignored it. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but they are, you know, seem to be, for the most part, committed to this this notion of parity, um, which is somewhat surprising, like I said, given that the this ordinance was non-binding and that they initially de had decided to ignore it. Um, and it's something that city council members have also uh, gotten on board with as well as as kind of deciding is is necessary for the criminal legal system to function equitably for for uh, defendants. You know, one of the interesting things is the, the person who actually ushered this ordinance through was Jason Williams, who at the time was city council president and is now district attorney. Um, and during his first year as district attorney last year, during his budget hearing, he was advocating for more money for his office and was asked, if we give you more money, does that mean we, we need to give the public defenders more money? And he basically said, no. <laughs> he said, you know, the DA's office does all sorts of things that the public defenders don't have to do. And actually, parity isn't really necessary at all. Um, I think pretty clearly contradicting what his position had been just the year before when he was on the city council. Um, and this year, I think something similar is happening. There's The DA is again asking for more money. Um, he wasn't explicitly asked whether or not uh, he thinks that that would necessitate more money for the public defenders as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, we can kind of intuit where he stands. He didn't return, you know, a request for comment from us on this story. So we'll see the budget we're recording this on Wednesday. The budget uh, needs to get passed tomorrow. Most of the city council members have said that they are, or several of the city council members have said that they're interested in, in increasing funding for the DA's office, but would also uh, in, increase funding for the public defenders in proportion to, to maintain parity. Okay, because he he's asking for a couple million dollars more, right? And 17 new DA's to prosecute yeah, felonies. Yeah, he, he has... He has 
quite a few requests. One of uh, the most significant being, yeah, like you said, some assistant district attorneys, and then he wants to set up a, a homicide unit in the district attorney's office that would he describes it as, as an elite group of prosecutors that would only handle uh, homicide and, and manslaughter cases. Mm. Um, so that would be a, a pretty significant uh, bump in his budget if you were to get that. Okay, cool. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Josh, up next with you in environmental reporting, the Louisiana Department of Health for about a year and a half publicly displayed confusing data regarding asthma-related emergency room visits from 2010 to 2015. In response to reporting from the lens, the state cited a technical error and has removed that data set from its website. What kind of data was the state displaying? Hi, uh, Carolyn. Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. Um, So the state from 2010 through 2015 was a grantee in a uh, program uh, administered by the CDC where they would collect the um, uh, the rates of asthma-related emergency room or emergency department visits. And, uh, you know, they collect that data, send it to the CDC, and the CDC would, um, you know, receive that data. And then based on its modeling, it would... Um, uh, quote unquote, smooth that data. And what, what, what that means essentially is kind of borrowing from uh, different geographical areas outside of a given geographical area, in this case, a parish. And the kind of the idea behind that is is for like rural counties in Wisconsin or Maine without that, you know, large uh, populations, if, if, if you kind of want to work with the data to, to find trends, uh, patterns, etc. then you, you kind of need more like raw numbers to work with. So um, the, the CDC would, would like, like I said, quote, smooth that data, provide that to the states. But they, you know, the states would also have um, in their possession the, the quote, unsmooth or, or raw data, and, and the CDC would, would also have that. So Basically, the, the, the idea is that these state health departments um, should not ever present that smooth data as, as the actual rates in any given parish, because that's, that's just not right. what, it's, what it's meant to represent. So uh, a, a whistleblower who, who contacted us, uh, she's in the story, her name is Vicki Booth, she was at the CDC at this very um, department that oversaw this program. And she was, she, she lives down in, in Louisiana now. She works with these different environmental groups down here. And she was perusing the website uh, about a year and a half ago in August. And she's very familiar with these numbers. And she saw that, you know, she, that she couldn't believe what she was looking at. She, she was seeing the smooth data and just to be clear, the, the smooth data set was, was used for the whole state, um, but it was particularly pronounced in a place like St. John the Baptist Parish. The difference between the unsmoothed or raw data was like 97 or 98 uh, visits, uh, asthma-related hospital visits to the emergency room uh, per a population of 10,000 um, versus the smooth data, which essentially cut that number in half, mm. cut it down to 55. So, you know, she, 
you know, reached out to her network as, as is reported in the story, the LDH responded at the time. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story here, but LDH responded at the time and said, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're, we're working uh, with this bureau. Well, let, let me, let me just kind of leave it there. I mean, uh, I'm, 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 I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So. Okay. Had they previously made the distinction between smoothed and unsmoothed on the website? As far as I know, they were only displaying the unsmoothed data up until last year when Vicky noticed it. You know, I mean, up up until like very recently when they took it down um, after our story ran, and and for some reason the the data set got switched to smooth. They didn't label it. There's nowhere on the website that said this is you're looking at the smooth data. Right. It wasn't in the the, the metadata or, or or anywhere. Um, and, you know, in, in response to our, the, the, the questions I was asking in pursuit of um, covering the story, the spokeswoman for LDH said it was because of some technical error. Like it was, it was inadvertently uploaded sometime last year that the wrong data set somehow got inadvertently uploaded. And due to a technical error, they were unable to remedy that. So it's an interesting, it's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I feel like that honestly might be a story in, in and of itself, if that's the case, if, if a state agency is not able to, you know, go in and, and, and operate the, the, the text and, and the figures on its own website. I mean, that seems problematic in, in, in perhaps a bigger scale. Can I ask that they're, they're saying they can't correct it now because of some technical glitch or something, but can they, um, can they asterisk it? Well, in, in response to the questions I asked, they they did put a note on their website with an, an asterisk or two saying, you know, we are using smooth data in certain circumstances with the asthma-related data. After the story ran, though, um, they changed that note to say the asthma-related data is now only available at the CDC and they took they took the entire data set down. You can't oh. find any asthma related data on LDH's portal currently. So it appears that whatever technical glitch they may have been mm. experiencing, you know, uh, suffering from uh, for the past year and a half has has either been you know resolved very quickly mm. um, once the story went to press, or they never. Uh, there, I suppose there was always that option to just, you know, remove the data completely and, and not present the smooth data as the parish level data. Right. You know, I think this is an issue you can see a lot in um, if you don't if these departments, whether, you know, these publicly facing portals or data sets, if these departments are not housed within um, you know, within these state departments or public parish departments, um, and you don't have that expertise, you know, within your own office, there can be delays in updating this stuff, there can um, be issues in keeping it current. And then, you know, kind of also to Josh's point, um, I, we saw this a lot during COVID with COVID data. Um, I'll use, for example, the school district, um, you know, they were presenting this per percentage of students in the district who had COVID. So it would be like 0.002%. 
because they were taking the total number of COVID cases and dividing it by the entire population of students. Yeah. When in you know, theory, that metric doesn't make any sense because we that's not out of the total number of COVID tests or, you know, students who had taken tests. So I think what's really important here is that, you know, anytime you have this public publicly displayed data and forward facing data, you need to describe exactly what you have out there and what people are looking at. Yeah. And in this case, it was an issue of, you know, technical inability to change what was on the site. Um, they showed that they were able to change what was on the site after Josh's story ran and they added a note saying this is the type of data that we have. Right, right, right. And Josh, why is asthma so important in that? Why is that data important to that particular parish? Yeah, um, it's a, it's um, an important question. It's, um, you know, when, when you think of uh, this part of the state that, um, you know, is, is in the industrial corridor um, that some refer to as cancer alley, asthma might not be the first illness that that you think of as as a being of like you know prime importance uh or, or having maybe the 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 most impact but you know and anecdotally um speaking of covid i i, I mean it when when you talk to people who who live there they'll say that covid covid hit you know saint john and different parishes in uh, the industrial corridor, especially hard, um, because because of of the kind of you know aggregate impact of of living around all that pollution, right? And you know to the extent that there were uh, respiratory issues associated with people's bouts of COVID. I, I mean, the asthma conditions of, of people, you know, could only have have hurt those health outcomes, I would, I would imagine. And, you know, people, people do actually die from asthma. And, and if someone's going to the hospital for asthma, especially if it's, if it's a child, I, I mean, that, that can be a, a very serious condition that can result in, in death, God forbid. But, um, you know, it's, it's something that should be reported with fidelity, I, you know, um, I don't think that's just my position. Uh, I think that's that should be broadly accepted as as you know the public's right to to know this kind of information. So as of now, to find any data on asthma in Saint John the Par- the Baptist Parish, you need to go to the CDC website. For those years that were exactly exactly right. So they they had on the website from 2010 through 2015. Um, on LDH's online portal until the story ran and it's no longer there. If you're interested, you have to go to the CDC's website, which uh, LDH does uh, link to, I believe, on on their website. Hmm. Okay, great story. Thanks, Josh. You're welcome, absolutely. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, editor of The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. 
Our reporters work tirelessly to provide public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. And now, through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your new monthly donation 12 times or double your one-time gift, all up to $1,000 per individual, making your gift even more important. Please give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you and happy holidays. Michael, we talked just a bit about this earlier. It looks like next year residents will be voting on two more charter amendments to the New Orleans Home Rule Charter that's being authorized. They're both being authored by Councilman Joe Giorusso. And a recent decision from the New Orleans Ethics Board could mean another charter amendment on the horizon. What is Councilman Giorusso proposing? Yeah, so, you know, these, to be honest with you, they're not the most exciting charter changes <laughs> um, you've ever seen. Um, but they are significant because any changes to the charter, you know, is a big deal. It's fairly permanent. And again, it's going to be an election. So it's something that residents, you know, are going to need to get educated about if they want to go vote on it. Um, so the two changes, um, the first one, you know, has been talked about for a long time. Um, and it, it's basically uh, trying to lengthen the amount of time that the city council uh, debates over the annual budget. So, you know, basically what the city charter says now, you know, the way the process works is that the mayor um, is responsible for uh, uh, creating a draft budget um, and presenting that to the city council. But it's the city council that has ultimate authority to actually approve the next year's budget. Um, so basically how it will work, how it works is that the mayor uh, will introduce that draft budget. Uh, the city council will then hold kind of these department by department hearings um, basically to see, you know, have departments justify their budget, see if any departments need more. Um, the council may decide that, you know, they're spending that isn't necessary and they'll make tweaks to that uh, initial draft budget and pass the final version. Um, actually, today we're recording this uh, on November 30th and tomorrow the council will be voting on a final budget for 2023. Um, so currently in the charter, um, it, the, the council is required to pass the budget uh, for the next year by December 1st, um, but the mayor uh, is only required to introduce the draft budget on November 1st. Um, and basically for a long time, council members have said that, that, um, that the, the deadline for the mayor to introduce the budget should be earlier mm. so that the council can have more time to look at the budget and really you know, get into the nooks and crannies of it. So. Neither of these charter amendments have actually been, you know, voted on yet. So we don't know the exact language of what we'll be voting on. Councilman Giarusso says that he's still working with the administration on the details, um, but that ideally he wants the um, draft budget to come by October 1st so that they have a, a, a you know, full two months to review it. Um, so that's the first one. The second one, uh, it's kind of a more of a technical change, um, and it would basically, uh, the the it would create a, a, an official department of code enforcement in the city charter. The city charter lays out 14 departments that exist within the city. And, and this includes a lot of the most important departments like the police department, department of safety and permits, um, but code enforcement isn't included. And so currently uh, code enforcement lives as a, as a office, um, but not a, a uh, department as defined in the city charter so the Department of Code Enforcement, you know, has over 40 employees. But if you look 
at the you know the the budget document you know you'll you'll see you know between five and a dozen employees that are actually in that office the rest are spread between different offices like the law department department of safety and permits and the department of sanitation um and, and basically you know uh councilman gio russo is saying that you know it's a very very important department when it comes to things like blight um you know overgrown lawns um you know minimum building uh minimum building standards and that it's really time that you know this office gets established as a charter department um so that there's no question about whether it's a standalone department or not you know I, something i noted in the story is that currently you know the, the office doesn't even have a dedicated full-time director hmm. um you know the, the head of that department is the person in charge of the entire office of business and external services which is an umbrella office that includes not only code enforcement, but the Department of Safety and Permits, um, uh, the, the Civil Service Commission, and several other big departments. So uh, I think for Councilman Gia Russo, he's saying that blight is a top priority for basically all council members, as well as the administration. Um, and so it's time you know, that this gets kind of established as a, as a standalone department. And I'll mention that, you know, while these haven't been formally introduced yet, um, Councilman Giarusso says that that will happen. Uh, the Cantrell administration says that they're broadly supportive of both measures. Mm. Um, so it, it kind of makes it likely that these will pass. Um, and, you know, the last piece of detail here is that they're aiming, um, you know, for this to go on the October ballot next year. So that's when voters can kind of, uh, per, you know, look forward to voting on these. Okay. And more changes might be afoot. You reported also on an ethics board resolution that could lead to another charter amendment change. What's that about? Yes. So, so this resolution, um, it has to do with the city's office of independent police monitor. Um, and, and that office, um, you know, as the name suggests, uh, you know, plays a role in, in overseeing the NOPD. And basically what the resolution said is, that the um, the office that the city should not grant the office more responsibilities or additional funding until their funding their minimum guaranteed funding uh, is is raised. Um, now it's a little bit complicated, but but I'll tell you how this works. Basically, um, the Office of Independent Police Monitor is one of three agencies that, in the city charter, which we've talked about. Um, has a minimum funding, meaning that the city council in its annual budget process has no choice but to fund it at these minimum levels. Um, now, the Office of Police Monitor this year said that they actually need more money than that minimum guaranteed standard. And, and the reason for that, you know, the main reason for that is that the office is saying that they really need to beef up the office's capacity um, as the NOPD consent decree um, kind of rolls off. So, you know, a little background here is that the NOPD since 2012 has been under a consent decree with the federal government um, following a federal investigation that found, you know, widespread unconstitutional and discriminatory practices. But in recent years, the city has fought really hard, um, you know, to get off that consent decree. Um, now, during the span of the consent decree, the main oversight body for the NOPD has been these federally appointed consent decree monitors. But if the city gets its wish and the consent decree ends or starts to roll off, those federal monitors will, you know, play less and less of an active role in NOP NOPD oversight. So basically, you know, the, the understanding is once that happens, it's going to be the Office of Independent Police Monitor that really needs to step up mm. into this role that for the past decade 
has been, you know, in in the hands of the federal government. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're arguing for a bigger budget. They're also arguing that they need, you know, more uh, legal authority to, you know, subpoena documents, to access information from the NOPD, laws that say, you know, the NOPD has no choice but to hand over certain documents if we're investigating certain things. Now, the reason why the ethics board made this ruling is that they argue that in order to do that, uh, that the the police monitor's budget, their minimum budget should be raised in the city charter um, and that it shouldn't just be up to the city council on a year by year basis to decide what their budget should be. Mm. And, and the reason for that is that this office is supposed to be independent um, non-politicized, right? And and I think that they express some concern that if their functioning is reliant on annual city council approval, um, that that could lead to a city situation where the city council says, hey, we want you to investigate this. And if you don't vow to it, then we're not going to give you this funding. Hmm. Um, and so again, you know, with this office, uh, you know, you want to avoid that. So that was really the justification they gave, really the two things. Number one, they're asking for a bigger budget. And number two, uh, the city council is considering this ordinance to give them more uh, authority. And basically the ethics board is saying that before they take on new authority, um, you know, the, the charter should be amended uh, to give them a higher minimum, again, so that they're not, they're not relying on the city council. So what's the reaction to this proposal? You know, I... I uh, Councilman Morell is basically saying at this point, you know, they're going to put both the budget increase and uh, this ordinance on hold while he works with the ethics ethics board to figure out, you know, how to basically allay their concerns. Um, you know, it, it, it really seems like at the end of the day, um, really the only way that they're going to be able to satisfy the ethics board's concerns is through a charter amendment, which, as we've discussed, will require voters to approve it. Um, so I think Councilman Morell's concern is, listen, we have to beef up this office now. Um, you know, at the soonest, a charter amendment can be done next year, but mm. even then, voters may not approve it. So I think he is a bit worried that, you know, you know that they're not going to be able to beef up this office, and, and he's worried about the charter amendment not passing. So I think, you know, what he's saying is basically he's going to try to work with the office to say, okay, a charter amendment is the long-term goal, but in the short term, give us permission, give us, you know, the green light to, to give this stopgap measure, you know, we'll give an increased funding this year, we'll increase these opportunities with the long-term goal of uh, passing a charter amendment and raising their guaranteed minimum funding. Uh, the, the police monitor, the head of that office, Della Cement, um, she, you know, she did not uh, agree to an interview. She sent a statement that basically, um, you know, just really emphasize the importance of the, the ordinance to give them additional powers. If you read between the lines, it, it sounds like the office is maybe a little bit unhappy that this decision could hold up that ordinance as, as well as their increased funding. Um, you know, again, Morell sounded confident that working with the ethics board, he'd be able to pass both those things. But, um, you know, obviously the office is seeking additional powers and money and this decision is putting that on hold. Um, so, you know, you can imagine the office isn't going to be exactly thrilled. Um, on the other hand, you have to imagine, you know, that if this does spur a charter amendment to give them increased minimum funding, that that's a good thing for their office. So, you know, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. If 
the money is necessary after they're no longer operating under the federal consent decree. Is the timing of the money kind of important there that they don't really want to fund it so much ahead of that still being the case with the federal consent decree in in operation? Do you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think the thinking is actually a little different. I think the thinking is you don't want you know, the consent decree to end and then to rush to try and build up this office, right? right? So I think the argument is, let's build the capacity now. Okay. Let's figure out the kinks. Let's figure out what laws we need in order for this office to do what it's going to need to do. And that way we can be confident when the consent decree rolls off that we'll have something in place. So I don't think anyone really wants to wait until, you know, there's just no oversight in place and we have to scramble and, and you know, create yeah. oversight as quick as possible. So again, I think you want that, you want to start building it now is the general argument. Okay. And when is the, when is it likely to roll off the federal consent decree? You know, it's really hard to tell. I don't know, Nick, do you, do you want to take this one? I think it's hard to say. I mean, the judge and the other parties, the U.S. Department of Justice are very skeptical of, of uh, whether or not the NOPD is in fact ready to, to be done with the consent decree. Um, and I don't think that 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 they are going to be um, out from under at any time in the immediate future. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and just want to add on that, you know, I think uh, you know people will argue that a robust independent police monitor will you know help with the city's goal of getting off the consent decree, right? Achieving the goals that there is a strong right. It, you know, so you know, again, the general argument, you know, one of the main hmm. arguments for getting released from the consent decree is about money, right? It, it takes a lot of money. You know, we pay uh, for the time that the federal consent decree monitors spend on this. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, compared to the budget increases that are being requested by the independent police monitor, I mean, it, it would still probably come out as a cost saving to the city overall. So I think that's another, hmm. another important point. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Okay, that's it. All right, y'all. Bye. All right, thank you. I guess. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Nick Crestel, Joshua Rosenberg, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>